That's why I have two microphones on. Um, at Waypoint Church, we go through, our plan is, and our hope is, we go through the, every book of the Bible in 10 years. So we're in year seven, and we've been through most of the books of the Bible. We're in the book of Revelation now, and so we're very intentional about preaching through each and every book. And so what we typically do at Waypoint is we typically go through a book of the Old Testament, then a book of the New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, because we're passionate about God's big story. And it's so cool to see in the book of Revelation, particularly this last book in the Bible, he fleshes out over and over and over again the meta-narrative. This huge story of what God is doing and what he's done and um, the rescuing, redemptive work that he's, that he's allowed us to be a part of. Now, um, I'm trying to pull up my notes here because it disappeared on me. There we go. So right now we're in, the, we're in the middle of the series in the book of Revelation. And one of the things that we're doing is we actually want every chapter, every word of the book of Revelation read out loud. So that's why you had two long chapters today. A couple weeks ago you had three chapters read. And so our goal is this is something that has, been, has happened throughout the history of the church. Something that was meant to be done. Was this book or this letter was meant to be read out loud to the church. And so all of these two chapters have been read out loud. Today we're mainly going to focus on chapter 13. Because we don't have time to go into both chapters. But I'll post an article about chapter 14 for you, if you have any questions about that chapter. But today we're mainly going to focus on chapter 13. So it's a lot of material, a lot of stuff I really want to get into, so let's just dive right into it. Last week in Revelation 12, we saw a vision of the great story of redemption, played out through the characters of the woman, the dragon, the child, and then the church. This is a vision of the time between Christ's first advent and his second coming. We saw that Satan is defeated and is, he is in his death throes. And this is a beautiful picture of triumph and hope for us today. But a question still looms heavy. This question was true for the believers in John's day as it is for us now. Is why do we still face struggles and attacks on a daily basis? Why do we still struggle for righteousness? Why does it feel sometimes that Satan is winning? These are real questions for us now, but imagine how the believers of Asia Minor would have felt back then. Under the persecution and oppression of the Roman Empire, uh, they, were, uh, they were already facing the, they already faced the attacks from Nero. Now they're under the rule of Domitian, who's oppressing Christians by taking their livelihoods away from them. They've already experienced one wave of persecution, now they're facing another. And it isn't just some bad people, but it's up from the whole Roman Empire. So they get this vision of a conquering child, then the vision turns to help them understand their circumstances. This vision in Revelation 12 and 14 is to show the people of God that they are not left alone in this world. That they are placed here for a purpose. They are to advance the kingdom of God and be a blessing to the nations. Very much like Israel of the Old Testament. Judgment is coming to the world. We've seen that in the rest of Revelation. But till that happens, the Christians are to make our way through the wilderness of this present age. While fixing our eyes on where our home really is. The devil is in his death throes. He wants to bring us down with him, but he can't consume the woman, so he uses other avenues of attack. He forms a counterfeit trinity. And John's point is that God has not left his people on their own. The church of the New Testament is what we need very much, what we walk through in this, in this time as we walk through this wilderness in this present evil age while longing for the heavenly city. And like Israel, we must depend in faith upon God to provide us all that we need from streams of living water, to manna of heavenly bread which sustains us. Were it not for God's protection, 
of the church from the rage of the dragon, Satan would cons- consume us with his lies. I'll go even further and say that if it wasn't for the church, we'd be swept away as well. But I believe the church is God's means of his protection over us in this day and age. But twice frustrated, the devil looks at other avenues of attack and forms this unholy counterfeit trinity. So right before we dive into our text a little more for Revelation 13, I want to remind you of two important elements on how to understand this book. Number one, you need to know the Old Testament. In order to understand the book of Revelation, you need to make sure you look back to all the allusions, the countless allusions that are from the Old Testament. It's foundational to understand this apocalyptic vision and this book. I've said it before, I'll say it over and over again. We need a whole breadth of scripture, not just the books that are easy to understand or that we just like to read. We need the whole counsel of scripture, all of it. And then number two, the context of the writer and the audience is so important here. John writes against the backdrop of a very large, very pagan, very God-hating empire, Rome. An empire which is also predicted by Daniel in his prophecy. And the historical context is the manifestation, actually, of this beast in Daniel as Rome, the imperial, the, the empire of Rome. And the book of Revelation, the Roman Empire itself becomes a symbol of all those God-hating empires, a symbol of the world, symbol of political powers and rulers and principalities that exist in this world. In other words, the Roman Empire is the fourth beast in Daniel's prophecy, and the beast who comes out of the sea, uh, described by John, empowered by the dragon. So it's on that context that you need to understand that John is writing this vision. People who have been suffering under the oppression of Rome. So in verse 1, chapter 13, John's vision is quite dramatic. He says, And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Now mind you guys, once again, those of you guys who know me well, my guilty pleasure is sci-fi fantasy. You guys know this about me, I love sci-fi fantasy, I'm, yes, I'm a nerd. And so me, when I think of dragons, I think cool. But this is not the image that you want with this. You, you want to think of dragons and think bad. See, dragon bad, go with me, you guys ready with me? And I love this image that this comes from, if you understand the context, in the ancient world, the sea was considered a place of chaos. It was considered the home of monsters. That's where the Leviathan dwelt. That's where chaos happened. That's where people's ships uh, got sunk into the ocean. That's where you don't go any further than. See, for us, we look at the sea, it's like, oh, it's cool because there's seas and they're beautiful and nature, and we can cross them. But back then, the sea was the unknown. It symbolized chaos to the ancient world. And so it's fitting for this place to be symbol of the abyss, this place of chaos. And John simply says, I saw a beast coming out of the sea. The beast had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and each head had a blasphemous name. Now first, you can't help but notice how the beast mirrors the dragon, as John depicted him in the previous chapter. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. The similarity between these two indicates that the beast draws its power directly from Satan and serves as his chief tormentor at Christ's church. So who is this beast? That the beast's detectively empowered empire is clear in verse 2 when John connects the beast who comes out of the sea directly to the fourth beast in the vision recorded in the seventh chapter of the prophecy of Daniel. This is what John says, The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had the feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. In Daniel 7, it says, The prophet spoke of a fourth beast, which was terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured his victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all other former beasts, and it had ten horns. While Daniel prophesied of this beast in connection with the future, John speaks of this same beast as a present reality. 
The letters to the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3 tells us that the beast is even then persecuting the saints. So just like the beast of Daniel 7, which spoke boastful words against God, so too we see in 5 and 6 of Revelation 13, that this beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months, which as we've seen is the entire church age. Furthermore, he, he opened his mouth to blaspheme God and slander his name and his dwelling place in those who live in heaven. See, God sealed his people on earth He's, with the name of Christ, protected them from his wrath. God protects the church from Satan by hiding his people in the wilderness. So enraged at being cast down from heaven, the frustrated uh, dragon now seeks revenge upon the people of God through the agency of the beast. And so doing the devil's bidding, the beast rises from the sea, and like his master, he blasphemed God in his church throughout the entire church age. But since the beast is empowered by Satan, he seeks the very same thing Satan does. He's namely to receive the worship or take the worship away from the right source or right uh, person, object of worship. In order to see the whole world, the beast now imitates the power of God, specifically resurrection. So do you see over and over again, John is showing to the original readers of, who understood the book of Daniel that the prophecy of the fourth beast was actually happening now in the Roman Empire. And so this fourth beast is empowered, a political state empowered by Satan to enact a oppression upon the people of God. And the whole world was astonished. It says right here on verse 3, we read, One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. The resurrection of beasts must be again seen against the historical background of John's own age and so-called Nero myth. The Roman Emperor Nero is one of the most notorious and evil figures of the ancient world. He was at first indifferent to Christianity, didn't care less, he cared less about this new kind of uprising religion that was happening, but later on became violently opposed, putting both Paul and Peter to death in Rome, along with other countless other Christian martyrs. Nero was a vain man, completely preoccupied with personal luxury and excess. He quickly bankrupted the whole imperial treasury. He confiscated land and property from the nobles to continue his spending. He was a violent man who killed his pregnant wife. He falsely, he's, he's suspected of starting a fire, which he blamed on the Christians. So he started a fire, which he suspected of starting a fire that raged through Rome for six whole days, and then turned and blamed it on Christians, leading to a persecution of Christians, which led to Christians being put on fire. He committed suicide in AD 68 at only 30 years of age, but rumors spread throughout the whole Roman Empire that Nero was still alive, that he had gone into hiding, and that he was coming back. The rumors spread that he would take, come back and he would take revenge against those who opposed him. He's actually admired in some parts of the empire, which actually was the reason why some of these rumors spread so rapidly. And the Jews living in Rome compared Nero with the little horn of Daniel's prophecy, actually identified him as the Antichrist, an evil figure whom the Jews believed would arise in the days immediately before the appearance of the Messiah. Another Christians followed suit, actually naming Nero an Antichrist in the early church. In any case, Nero figures prominently in John's teaching about the beast and his persecution of the church. Nero is a historical backdrop which all subsequent figures of Antichrist need to be seen against. We read in verse 4, Men worshipped the dragon because he had been given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Guys, the question that you have to understand is when they ask this question, Who is like the Roman Empire? This was the greatest empire in the history of the world. 
This is an empire that conquered all of the known world, that spread out to places that they've never even heard of, that created Rome's, that made the statement, all phrase, all roads lead to Rome. This is an empire that was bigger and badder and more powerful than anything they've ever possibly conceived. Who is like the Roman, who is like the beast, who can make war against him? And by worshipping the emperor and the state, men were actually worshipping the dragon who brought the beast from the sea. But not only was the beast given authority over the nations, he also appears to be victorious over the saints. John warns in verse 7, the beast was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. As you see, this refers to the Christians living throughout the Roman Empire, especially in cities like Smyrna and Pergamum, where Christians had not only been prevented from buying and selling, but actually had their lives taken away from them for not worshipping the beasts. It's widely known in John's day that countless Christians lost their lives in Rome for refusing to renounce their faith in Jesus and acknowledge Caesar as Lord. But guys, this is not a phenomenon that was limited back then. According to people who keep such statistics, throughout the 1990s, an average of four Christians per day were put to death because of their faith in Jesus. Let me say that again. During the 1990s, the average of four Christians a day were put to death because of their faith in Jesus. Until this day, in which we in particular prayed for the persecuted church, that number just blows my mind. See, what happens is we see here that Satan has given power to the beast, and the beast, it seems like, has power even over the saints, even to put the saints to death, even to the point of martyrdom, where they died for believing in Jesus and for denying and not saying Caesar is Lord or for whatever other religion or authoritative or dictator is Lord. They were killed for such a thing. The beast is still at work in the present age. But what the beast tries for evil, the conquering lamb turns for good. When the beast takes the life of one of the saints, the saint comes to life and reigns with Christ, taking their place in the triumphant church in heaven, with a multitude so vast they cannot be counted, as they await the resurrection of their bodies. They are safe in the presence of God and spread, uh, are spared from the lies of the devil. When God raises up witnesses of the law and the gospel, and should the beast take their lives, God only raises up more. Let us not forget who wins in the end. And when we go to see the city of Rome right now, when we go to Rome and we look at it right now, what do we see? We see the ruins of a great empire. But all we see are ruins. Christ's kingdom always wins in the end. See, I want you to not miss this. Right now, you're suffering. There are times that you're suffering. Our brothers and our sisters are suffering around the world, and it breaks my heart. They're suffering for the sake of the gospel. They're suffering for not saying Caesar is Lord. They're suffering for saying that Jesus is Lord, and they're dying. And it seems like the beast is winning. It seems like the beast has power over the saints. But what the beast doesn't have, I want you to get this, is ultimate winning power. Because the lamb is conquered. And what happens when the lamb conquers is that whatever the beast asked, whatever the beast wanted for evil, he turns and uses for good. And he says, even though you can put my people to death, you cannot take who they are away from them. You cannot take the reality that they're beloved and they're known and they're called to purpose. You cannot take away that they're sealed and bonded. You cannot take away their internal soul and they'll dwell with me in eternity forever. My people... The reality is that eventually sickness and death will happen to all of us. That's reality. But what is meant for evil is turned for good 
God has called us, has sealed us as followers of him. And he's given us a new hope. May that be our identity and our reality. In verses 11 through 18, it's here that John introduced the final member of the counterfeit trinity. The fourth main character of this section, the so-called false prophet. What I want to see close is it connected to the first beast as John says, Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. There are a number of very important points in this first short declaration. The first is that this particular beast is called a false prophet in Revelation 16, 13. While here it is depicted as a messianic pretender coming out of the earth. Second, the first beast came up out of the sea. This one comes out of the land. So together it would see their influence extends to all the earth. And they attempt to mimic the kingdom of God and attract the worship of the, uh, to the dragon that they serve. Has this imitation of conquering all the land and all the sea. Furthermore, John describes the beast as having two horns like a lamb, but speaking like a dragon. This two-horned lamb is clearly an imitator of the seven-horned lamb who was slain in Revelation 5-6. He is therefore a false messiah who is closely allied, allied to the first beast. His two horns mimic the two witnesses, the two lampstands, the two olive trees of Revelation 11. And as a false messiah, he pushes for false worship, worship which is directed to someone or something other than God. Whereas the ministry of a true prophet is to lead people to worship God. The false prophet's mission is to entice people to worship the beast. Together with the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet form a false trinity, placing themselves in positions of power and authority so as to deceive the world and receive the worship of God of the earth's people, which is rightly directed to God. So based upon the prophecy in Daniel 8 of a secular empire, this lamb speaks with the full authority of the dragon who is Satan. And when he opens his mouth on behalf of the first beast, he speaks nothing but lies. He's not only a false messiah, he's a master of religious deception. Like the figure depicted in Daniel chapter 8, 25, this false prophet will cause deceit to prosper and he'll consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he'll destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he'll be destroyed, but not by human power. According to Daniel, he exercises his power during a time of great upheaval. In Daniel 8.23, it says, In the later part of the reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not only by his own power. He will cause a stunning devastation that will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men of the holy people. While Daniel spoke of this as coming to pass in the distant future, it's actually a present reality for John the Christians to whom he is writing. The second beast has, very, has been so variously associated with numerous things by, by Christians through the ages, myriad of false teachers throughout all of history. And indeed, there is much of the New Testament warnings us, warning us of false teachers who will come and try to lead us astray. Now what I want you to hear is this, the second prophet is any teaching, I want you to get this, is any teaching that is contrary to the truth of the gospel. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. This is anything that leads you astray, any teaching that will come and lead you astray, whether it's the teaching that Jesus did not actually come in the flesh or the teaching that Jesus did not actually die. Any teaching that leads you astray is what this false teaching is. The New Testament warns of this. Recall Matthew 24, 5, Jesus himself warned us of false messiahs who would arise within the church. And in his first epistle, John says, Dear children, this is the last hour. As you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For they didn't belong to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. 
According to John, in verse 7 of the second epistle, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. And any such deceiver, any such is the deceiver and the antichrist. So mimicking God's prophet and the lamb who was slain, all three characters of this counterfeit trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, now take their place in this great drama. They are the arch enemies of Jesus and his kingdom and seek through many means to deceive the world so that they can worship the dragon. Those who will not be for them will forfeit their lives, but their work was foretold by Daniel and was already a present reality when John was given this vision. And this is the background of verses 16 through 18 when John speaks of the so-called mark of the beast and reveals to the churches the beast's secret number, which is 666. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I was a, when I was a kid growing up, Anytime I saw the number six, I, I got a little freaky. I was like, oh, that's evil. That's, that's of the devil. You know? Like, my wife's cell phone number, yeah, don't judge her for this. But her cell phone number has 803. Uh, I'm not going to share her number. I shouldn't say it. But it has 666 in it. I know. And I'm like, I, I actually, I, how, this is so ingrained in me. That fact that there's 666 in her number, I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't marry her. No, I didn't think that. <clears throat> We have so many misinterpretations of what this number actually means. According to John, the false prophet forced everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand, on his forehead, so no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark. There is some popular teaching of the day that is in reference to this future, this, this idea. Maybe there is a possibility some people think that it's a, a future technology, maybe a, a computer-generated chip or some sort of technological nanomaterial or something that's supposed to be placed upon people's hands and foreheads during the Antichrist's seven-year tribulation so that they can know where you are and judge you. And people think there's also all these other things. There's a lot of theories out there of what this is referring to. Right? And you're like, what? No, growing up, that's what I was taught over and over again. And they're actually going to put 666. I actually was taught this. That like, there was a movie. I don't remember what the movie was. But I remember like, you have to look for it. If you find 666 written really small, that, or there's a barcode, and that means that person's the Antichrist. Kid you not. But this is what's really happening. John calls this, this entire period of time between Christ's two coming and the Great Tribulation. Christians in John's original arms are already facing this very threat. John is warning all Christians in every age to be on guard for the state, to impose its mark upon us when it forces us to declare that someone other than Jesus is Lord. To take this mark is to worship the beast, which is worship the dragon who lies behind him. What this literally means, and it makes it much more clear if you understand this. To make this idea more clear, you have to think of the location that is used, the forehead and the hand. This location would immediately throw all of John's audience back to the Shema. That's where immediately they would go. That's where, head, forehead, hand, okay, yes, the Shema. That's where the Shema was gone, right? Which is, the Shema is found in Deuteronomy. The Shema is a prayer statement, slash statement, that the Israelite people were taught to say and pray every day. It was, it was a mandate. It was a mantra. It was a proclamation. It was so much more than all that. And they were told to bind this. Where? Two places. Where are they told to bind it? Anybody? Their head and their hands. Right? This mantra, this statement, this proclamation was supposed to be bound. This prayer, this, this, this exclamation was supposed to be bound to their hands and to their head. In other words, it's a part of who they are. It's almost like a symbol of, of, of a branding. We are the people of the Shema, is what it's crying out. It's bound to me. It's, it's marked to me. This is who I am. We're the people that say, listen, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, all your being, and all your might. 
That was a Shema. And that was supposed to be branded, tied, attached to them, identifying who they were on their hands and on their head. This is an identifying marker. They are separated people, set apart to worship the one true God and to love Him. So when the mark of the beast is talking about hands and forehead, the people knew what they were talking about. It meant loyalty. It meant identity with the beast. It meant a form of ownership. It says, oh, I'm taking the mark of the beast. It means you take, upon, you take upon yourself the lies of the beast and say, this is to whom I belong. This is to whom I owe allegiance. This is to who, whom I am a part of. And what about the number six success? In verse 18, John says, this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it's man's number. His number is 666. Throughout the history of the church, there's been so much speculation. And I'm actually going to post an article on the realm talking about this, something called a gematria, which I'll post it on the, on the realm. You'll get to read all about it, hear about it. But John's making the point that the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet co- constitute a counterfeit trinity, seeking the worship of the nations, rightfully meant for God and his, his Christ. The number seven is a number of perfection and completeness. Hence, the divine number would be 777. But six is a number of man. And repeated three times, 666 consistently falls short of 777. Therefore, the number 666 is an apocalyptic symbol for those uh, rulers, nations, false teachers whose satanic nature becomes a parent to the people of God. In other words, it comes down to is that the number symbolizes falling short. The number symbolizes anything that is not perfect, anything that is not God. Are you with me so far? See, here's the problem that we have. Can I just be honest with you guys? Is when we think of 666, when we think of Mark of the Beast, when we think of the adversary, and we think of the Satan, we think of evil spirits and the occult and all this kind of crazy stuff, what we don't think are the true counterfeit trinity, the true counterfeit gods that the counterfeit trinity is using in our lives every single day. Do you hear me? This has nothing to do with barcodes or debit cards or microchips or modern technology. The mark of the beast and the number six has to do with the beast and the false prophet forcing people to acknowledge a different ruler, a different authority, a different source of who God may be. They want somebody to say Caesar is Lord. And the mark of the beast is present in John's day. The mark of the beast is, is present when we see look at our newsreels and we see children back in the day singing Hitler was our savior, Hitler was our Lord. It's not a phenomenon that's limited to future tribulation. We see it even in places like North Korea, where they worship, have to worship the dictator in an oppressed state. 66 is a counterfeit God, a teaching that is antichrist. But here are the things, guys, that I want you to get. The most clever thing, as I quoted last week from Usual Suspects, the devil ever did is convincing the world he doesn't exist. Is that the counterfeit trinity is putting forth new ideas that are counterfeit God so that for you to worship something that is other than God. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller lists money, sex, and power as counterfeit gods. I would throw so many other things on that list. Counterfeit gods is anything that takes your dependence, devotion, love, and hope away from God. I care for guys anything that you look at and say, if I had that thing, or if I did this well, or if I wanted that more, or if I turned it this way, then I will get all that I need, all that I want, and I will be satisfied. Other than the one thing that you are made for is relationship with the divine creator of the earth. 
Anything that thinks that you think will take away from your devotion to that God is a counter for God. And can I tell you something, my people? We don't need scary images. We don't need horror movies to take us away. The counterfeit God that this counterfeit Trinity has projected into our day, our time, and has sneakily brought it into us has subverted us, has come into our existence and made it so normal for us, is so much more dangerous than all these other things. The allure of the American dream is a counterfeit God. Can I say that again? The allure of of pure comfort and satisfaction with all that you've earned and all that you've done. Look at my nice house and my beautiful kids and my nice dog. That's a counterfeit God. Because your life is meant for so much more than that. What you yourself thinks you've attained. Your faith in a political party to rescue and save the world and make it better is a counterfeit God. Do you hear that? Your desire for just seeking comfort and pleasure is a counterfeit God. These are gods that won't satisfy. These are idols that have been created out of the evilness, out of the sinfulness of both your heart and the counterfeit trinity that says, how can I lead them astray? I cannot conquer the lamb. I cannot conquer the woman. They're set apart, but in my death throes, how can I lie to these people, make them chase after these other things so that they don't know the reality of the truth of the, of the gospel message that is theirs to behold and to have? Another one is a lie that counter for God is yourself. Belief that me and, and my own ability can be, can accomplish anything. And guys, I want you to hear this. I love it. I love what we say to our kids. You can do anything you put your mind to. And I love that. I want to empower our people. Don't get me wrong. Man. I, I, I believe in who you guys are through Jesus. I believe you can do amazing things. That's not what I'm talking about. But a belief that you yourself are God and you are all you need. And if you just discover more of yourself, then that's all, that's all, that's all that matters. That is a counterfeit God. Because you are not God. Do you hear me? My people, we have a, a choice just like the, the believers that first received this word. Where Caesar seemed all powerful, the Roman Empire seemed to be all controlling. It was permeated all throughout culture. You couldn't barely couldn't buy food or get drink without Caesar's money, without the Roman Empire. You couldn't do life without it. It seems like so much is ruled, and so of course it seems like Caesar is Lord. And so the Catholic God pushes that. The Catholic Trinity pushes that. Thus, in our age and day, in our life, it seems like everything that permits all of who we are, our culture, our life, our systems, everything, seems to point to other things as, for, as more important than God. Can we make the same choice that the believers did? And we say, Jesus is Lord. And the conquered lamb, the conquering lamb, the lamb who conquered by dying upon the cross, by ransoming, ransoming his people. He's the hope that we have. So the question is, guys, what mark is on you? Do we carry the mark? What is our identifying factor? What, is, what makes up who we are? Do we fall victim to the lies of the evil one? Or do we stand in truth that says, I am a beloved child of God, rescued because Jesus chose to love in such an incredible way? died upon the cross he's resurrected and he reigns forever enthroned may that be who our identity is and may we stop chasing after counterfeit gods let's pray
Heavenly Father, we, God, we thank you for your word. God, your word that still speaks of it, even in the difficult circumstances and, and even the hardest times, God, that we understand that, God, that even though times are hard right now, that you called us to a purpose in this present day and age. Even though this day and age is, is full of evil and it's difficult, God, you bind us, you, you call us, you identify us, you brand us with your mission. God, we're called beloved children of yours, so we forth, go forth in this world to be a blessing to those who don't know you, to be a blessing to the nations, to be a blessing in this wilderness, God. You've called us to a mission. But we also know that, God, even though we may suffer, even though we may feel pain, even though hardships happen, even though people may die, and even though Satan's on his death throes and it's hard, we know who reigns triumphant. It is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And so we take hope in the midst of that, hope in knowing that, God, you will, you will fulfill and finish the work that you started, that you will make all things new. And that is our identity, God. So instead of chasing counterfeit gods, may we stand firm and hold on to you. You are good. And your mercy endures forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.